Heavenly Father, the greatest privilege that we get as your children is to know the depth of your love for us and to experience the magnitude of your, your greatness and your mercy and your glory and your worth. And Sundays mark an opportunity for us to gather as your family and for us to, to push deeper into that reality by looking at scripture, by worshiping, by communion, through fellowship, Father. And so my prayer, my earnest prayer for this morning, Father, is that you would take any error from my mouth, that we would see clearly what you desire for us to see, and that the magnitude, the weight of your glory would press into our lives in ways that cause us to know you and to show you to the world, specifically your love, Father God, your compassion, in ways that we, we haven't been able to before or we've never thought to before. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Luke 10, verse 25. This is the second week in a series we've been doing, looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. And uh, my hope, my prayer for this time, um, and really it, it probably will continue for the next two months, um, is that God would use this story, this parable, as a, an opportunity for us to um, experience the love that the Samaritan feels for this wounded man. Not only, not only just to feel that love, but to, to do what the Samaritan does. I think both of those are crucial. It is crucial for us to be able to love. And it is crucial for us to be able to show that love, loving in here and then expressing it with our hands, our feet, our mouths, um, because action without love is fake. Action without love underneath it is fake. It's pretending. And love without action is meaningless. And Christians are compelled to love their neighbors and they're driven to show that love in sacrificial service. So let's look at this passage again, Luke 10 verse 25 through 37, uh, and then we'll dive right in. So it says here, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, the wounded man. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man said, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So last week we saw this lawyer trying to test Jesus. And he was trying to ask him this question about, uh, test him by asking this question, how does one inherit eternal life? And he discovered testing Jesus is a bad idea. You do not want to do this because Jesus immediately throws the test back into his lap and asks him the question, a lawyer who should know the law, what does the Bible say? This is the person who studies God's word. What does God's word say about this? And the answer that is that to receive e- eternal life, we must love God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourself. And Jesus hears this response and affirms it saying this is the pathway to eternal life. And we said that this pathway is only possible through a supernatural event called the new birth, being born of God. And being born of God, when you're born of God, it yields an experience we know called faith, receiving Christ Jesus for who he really is. And you may only see him when you first believe in part You see a glimpse of who he is, but it's enough to say, I want that. I want to give up everything for that. I love him. And then over time, every day, you see more and more and more of Christ, and you fall deeper in love with him. Faith is receiving Jesus Christ in an ever-increasing way as your treasure, as your joy, as your Lord, as your Savior. He's not just the means by which we're saved. He is both the means and he's the end. He's the goal. He's, the, he's the, where we want to be forever. And so what that means is that eternal life is, is not mainly a place. We think about eternal life as heaven. It's not mainly a place. Eternal life is a taste of who God is. John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know God the Father, and they know his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to live, truly live. And from this fountainhead of life, the Bible says that we can live sacrificial lives, loving people with the very love that Christ has loved us. And so that was last week. That's what we covered last week as we opened up this section. But we see here in the text today that Jesus, in affirming the lawyer's response, opens the door because the lawyer is not done. He still has one more question, and it will only be one more question because Jesus will silence him after this. Um, And that question is this. The lawyer in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, desiring to vindicate himself, says, who is my neighbor? This is his question. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? In other words, who must I love, like myself, to inherit eternal life? 
And this question incites the parable that we're looking at today and reveals, really reveals how wretched this man's and how broken this man's heart really is. He isn't interested in loving God. He isn't interested in loving people. He's only interested in, in checking a box so that he can get eternal life. And that's broken. That's sinful. That's wicked. This lawyer, is what he's trying to do is he's trying to narrow down the requirements so that he could just do the minimal, whatever it takes to get in. The only value he sees in loving people is what it gets him in the end. That's where this question comes from. And so it has nothing to do with actual love, which is the command. The command so, and this is one thing to recognize about this text. The command that Jesus is affirming when the lawyer says it back to him isn't a command just to show love. It is a command to experience love, and we can only experience that with God's work on the heart. Yet the reason Jesus is telling this story in the first place is that he knows. He knows that even his brothers and sisters, even the children of God that he's come to redeem out of the world, even though they've tasted something of God's love, it is still a struggle to show this love to others. We end up asking the same question as the lawyer, who is my neighbor? And whether it's consciously or, or unconsciously, we tend to push people to the margins of our lives, into the periphery, and we ask this question, who do I have to help today? Like, who do I actually have to help today? Or who do I not have to help today? Who can I avoid or ignore now, we never say this out loud. We never say this out loud. We may not even think this consciously in our minds. But what the lawyer does with his words here is he expresses something that happens in our hearts. And that is this question, who is my neighbor? Do I really have to spend time loving this person or not? And we see this happen in the parable with the priest and the Levite. So listen to verse 30 through 32 the beginning of this parable, and look at the responses of the priest and the Levite. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, when he saw the wounded man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him passed by on the other side. So these two individuals, a priest and a Levite, and we're going to spend a, a week or two, we're going we're to talk about them a little bit more. They're walking down the road. They see this man who is dying, half dead. He's dying. And it says they passed by on the other side, both of them. That's their response. And I think we need to play this scene out in our heads. We need to get on the road with them and sort of conceive of what's going on here. They're walking down this road. They see this man dying. And they have a choice. The choice is, do I go and help him or do I not? That's the choice that they're faced with. And then underneath that choice comes this question, who is my neighbor? Like, who do I actually have to help? Can I just kind of forget that I saw him? Can I forget that I, that I saw this? 
Because really, he's not my problem. He's somebody else's problem. I didn't do this. I mean, he knows the road is difficult from Jericho to Jerusalem. He knows there's robbers here. What was he doing? It's not my problem. And so, when we're faced with this question in the parable, which echoes the question that the lawyer announced leading to the parable, we need to ask, where does this question come from? Like, where, where did this question first begin? Where did it originate? Why is the lawyer asking this question? Why is the priest and the Levite in the parable asking this question? Or, if we want to bring this closer to home, why is it that we feel the inclination to ask this question? Not with our words, but with our decisions, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. Where does this question come from? And the Bible is not afraid to answer this. It comes at the very beginning of this book. Listen to Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desi its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When approached with the absence of his brother, Cain says to God, Am I my brother's keeper? Which is simply another way of saying, Really, who is my neighbor? Who am I in charge of? Who do I take care of? The story of Cain and Abel is a story everybody, at least in Western civilization, knows. It's, a, it's kind of a universal story, and there's a good reason for it. Upset of Adam and Eve, uh, they, are, they represent the beginning of human existence. They represent the beginning of mankind. They are the first people who were born into the world. And this scene in Genesis 4 is how they are defined. It's how they are understood. One was killed and the other is the killer. And this is fallen humanity's, as difficult as it seems, fallen humanity's first expression of community. These are neighbors. These are brothers. One is dead at the hands of another. And so we see that this question, who is my neighbor, is a question in many ways that is defined human existence from the very beginning, at least fallen human existence. And in this story, God shows us 
between Cain and Abel, uh, a dichotomy. There's, there are two human pathways being expressed here, and both of them are connected in their relationship to him. Cain's offering is sinful and wicked. It's selfish. It does not express the love towards God. And Abel's offering is good and righteous. And God responds accordingly, justly, to both of them. And then it says in the response where God does not regard Cain, Cain's face falls. It says Cain was very angry, his face fell, and then God, God asked him, why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Which is literally translated, will there not be, Cain, if you do well, a lifting up of your face to look at me, to experience me, to enjoy me? In other words, Cain's relationship with God and his relationship to his brother are not separate experiences. They're not separate experiences. They are intimately and deeply connected. And I want you to listen to how John, thousands of years later, grapples with this connection, how that connection between God and other people and its relationship to the story of Cain and Abel relates to the lives of everyday Christians. So 1 John 3, 11. This is what it says. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because... We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's heaven. So John begins with this statement, this is the message we have heard from the beginning. Now what is that message? The message is that we should love one another. That's the message. And when he says beginning here, John isn't saying um, when Jesus commanded this. Jesus did command this, but he's not pointing to that beginning. He's not also saying when uh, Moses gave us the law. John is referring to the very beginning, and we know this because he goes, he makes a beeline for Cain, who's at the beginning. Cain knew this command, and yet murdered his brother. Not because Cain was neutral and sort of made a bad decision, not because Cain was uh, just having a bad day. Cain made this decision to kill his brother because, John says, he was of the evil one and hated his brother. Which is wild for him to say that. John doesn't even engage a neutral category. Think about this. In this text, he doesn't even talk about a third group. There are two groups. You see that? Two people groups. One loves and one hates. One has life and the other has death. And there are several things we could draw from this passage, but one of the most relevant to us is that, the simple fact that there isn't a category in here for indifference. There isn't a category for ignorance. 
There's nothing like that here. In John's spirit-inspired thinking, there is either love or hate. To not love someone isn't to be indifferent towards them. It is hate, according to John. And he's telling his listeners, don't be like Cain. Don't do this. Don't embrace death. Don't abide in death like Cain was. He says, we know that we passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Loving people is evidence that we belong to God. And if we don't love, John is saying here that we abide in death. The opposite of love is hate. And murder, he goes so far as to say it's murder, which is echoing what Jesus taught, that to hate somebody in your heart is just the same as killing them. And John leaves us with no middle ground. Now why is this the case? Why doesn't John leave us a little bit of an eye with a little cushion in between of indifference? Maybe I don't love you, I don't love you, maybe I don't care. Um, and I just feel indifferent about it. None of us, none of us would say, I hate my neighbors. None of us would say that. We'd say something like, I wish I had more time. Or, uh, I'm just not in a good place right now to serve my neighbors. Or we would say, I have a really busy schedule. My schedule's super busy and keeps me from serving people around me. And those are all legitimate excuses. Don't hear me wrong. Those are reasonable things. But we don't say, I hate you. But we express a kind of lack of love when we lean into those things the way that John is talking about here. And we end up sounding a lot like the lawyer asking the question, who do I really have to serve today? Who do I really have to love? Cain asked this question before he killed do I really have to love this guy? No. And the priest and the Levite asked the question, the lawyer asked the question, we, sometimes we ask this same exact question. So why does John not provide a third category? Why is it either love or hate? Why, why these extremes? Well, John answers that in the next two verses, verses 16 through 17. Look at this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John begins in these two verses telling us how we know love. We know love because love was defined by Jesus Christ on the cross when he showed love by giving himself completely for us. He laid down his life for the brothers, the greatest expression of love in human history. And then John presses that expression into our own context by saying, listen, if, if anyone has the world's good, has stuff that they could give, time that they could give, energy that they could give, something that they could give a brother or sister in need, yet closes their heart against them. How does God's love abide in that person? In other words, how does God's love abide in someone who refuses to help his brother or his sister in need? 
Look at the language. To not love is to close your heart against the Lord. That's what happens when we ask the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? In other words, when we're saying, if there's a way that I can exclude you from expressing my love, we are closing our hearts to someone. And for the Christian, that's not an option. To close our hearts and to disobey this message that God has has shouted from the beginning to love one another is to hate our neighbor and to be completely empty of the love of God. And so let's go back to the parable and look at how John focuses in verse 33 of Luke 10 on um, what, or how John, John's, the realities John's showing, it's, uh, showing to us here show up inside the parable text. Verse 33, what does the Samaritan say when he comes to this man? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, when he saw the wounded man, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asks, do you think, lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell robbers? And the lawyer responds, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, You go and do likewise. So Jesus takes the lawyer's original question, Who is my neighbor? and says, No. That is not the question. Of someone who loves God, that is not the question that they ask. The question that that person asks for someone who wants to keep their heart wide open isn't, who is my neighbor? It is, how can I prove myself to be a neighbor to everyone I see in need? I'm the one who needs to be the neighbor. I'm the one who needs to give myself to the people around me. Notice in the parable, the only criterion, this is amazing, the only criterion for this wounded man to be someone that the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan should help is that he is present and he is desperately in need. The wounded man is simply there. That's it. And so... When I read something like this, I think about my life. Like, how many people in my life around me fit into this category? They're just present, and they need help. They need help spiritually. They need help physically. How many people every day do I see who are in this category? And Jesus says the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan came upon this man by chance, just as they journeyed, normal day, walking down the road, so that means that this incident, this encounter, is a matter of geography and sovereignty. It's ge geography because he's just near them physically. He is near these people. And, and, and so when we think about our lives, who is near us? Who has God brought near us? Whether it's in the workplace or whether it's across the street from where we live. Who has God brought near us? And secondly, it's sovereignty in the sense that this isn't an accident. Like it didn't happen accidentally. God... <laughs> or someone who has tasted the love of God is near people 
by God's sovereignty that need to experience that love. God isn't confused about where we are geographically. He's not trying to figure that out. Ultimately, we are where we are geographically because he's allowed us to be there. He's put us there. We are where he wants us to be. And if he needed us somewhere else, we would be there. And God isn't powerless to bring people into our lives who need to experience love. He heals and loves and shows compassion through his people. So think about this for a moment. The compassion that the Samaritan is showing this wounded man isn't coming out of the, the Samaritan's heart de novo, out of nothing. It is the very compassion that God has for that wounded man. And it is flowing through the Samaritan into his actions to heal the brokenness of this person that he sees on the side of the road. To that man, the Samaritan is the love of God in the flesh. A tangible love of God. Which is why in Christianity the central ethic is love. It is love. Think how profound that is. At the center of Christianity is love. So look at Romans 13, 8 and 10. Paul is going to tell us in this text the primacy and the urgency and the centrality of what love is in the Christian life. Verse 8. Paul says to the Roman church, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who has loved has, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is saying here that we owe people love. We owe people love, but we owe them that. He says, owe no one anything except owe them love. Love each other. Love is a debt. We always pay to everyone. And Paul roots this in the fact that it's fulfillment, or that it is the fulfillment of all the law. All these commands, he says, are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the law. Because Love does not do anyone wrong. It doesn't do anyone wrong. Um, love protects. Love cares. Love comforts, love helps, love guides, love refuses to do wrong to someone, and therefore it is the fulfillment of all the law. And this is what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan sees a man dying on the road, and he runs to him and loves him. He lifts up this bloody corpse of a man hanging on to the last thread of his life, and brings him back to life, even at an extraordinary cost to himself, which we'll spend, we'll spend a, a Sunday talking about the cost. That's the parable. And what it teaches us is that at the center of Christianity is this dominating paradigm. Christians love people. 
They love people. They love until it hurts, and then they continue to love after that. Love isn't simply an option. It is the embodiment of the Christian life. Or you may not be looking at a Christian if they claim to be a Christian and they have zero love in their hearts. Um, and I don't know any other way to read 1 John three sixteen through 17. Look at this again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is saying, how can God's love abide in a heart that looks at a neighbor in need and closes off all compassion, closes off all grace? And John's answer, this is a rhetorical question, John's answer is, it can't, period. It can't. But John knows who he's talking to. He's not writing this letter and saying this statement for nothing. He knows who he's talking to. He's talking to people who, though they may have tasted and experienced the love of God in the gospel, though they know it and it is very real to them, they still struggle. And if you're like me, you still struggle to love your neighbors sacrificially, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's so easy for me to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? But look at how John, in this text, fights against our struggle. The opening line, he says, By this we know love, by this we know love, that he, Christ Jesus, laid down his life for us. And from that laying down of his life, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is John's solution to the struggle. This is John's solution to our te the tension inside of us, knowing that we should love and not being able to love the way we ought to. And he says in this text, in this first sentence, Christian, wake up. You know this love. You know it. You've experienced it because you know the gospel. You know what he did for you. You know that Christ laid down his life for you. Therefore, love like he loves. Love like he loves. And so how did Christ love us? How did Jesus show his love about us? And when I, when I was trying to process this part of the sermon, I honestly just started to think and contemplate through Scripture what happened for the holy, perfect, beautiful, wonderful God of the universe to look down on me, a sinner, a rebel who is predisposed to ignore God and predisposed to disregard other people who need help and just serve myself. What did God have to do in order to love me? Because that's my heart. Naturally, that's my heart, to not love people. I do not deserve his love. I do not deserve his mercy. I deserve justice. I deserve for him to be a good God and a good judge and say, you're wicked. You should never be around me ever and cast me away. Yet we don't get that. Instead, Jesus Christ looks at you and I and he doesn't ask the question, who is my neighbor? 
never even crosses his mind. He doesn't try to find a loophole to justify himself. Instead, this Savior, Jesus Christ, bears the full weight of justice on his shoulders so that he could justify us instead. Think about how much he must have had to love his neighbor to die for them at their own hands. What kind of love are we dealing with in the gospel? And the Bible shockingly invites us into that same radical love. I want you to listen to Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. And I want to look at how Paul describes the love of Christ in his condescension to come and rescue us. How far did Christ have to go to get to us? How far did he have to go to get to us? The Son of God, the creator of the universe. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Talking to risen hope. Have this mind, think this way, risen hope, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God the Son emptied himself. What does that mean? Like, God, in order to save us, has to empty himself taking the form of a servant. Literally, this word in Greek is slave. And being born in the likeness of men, that alone is unfathomable. That alone is beyond comprehension that God would do that to show us his love. But he goes even further still, humbling himself all the way to death on a cross. So when John says, he laid down his life for us, John is talking about this, the God of the universe taking on flesh and dying for us in order to prove to be our neighbor. The greatest act of love in human history, when God looked down on our souls and saw them empty of love, empty of enjoyment in him, completely closed off to our fellow man, and died for us. He saw us like that and did not give up. He went all the way to the cross, and though this was an incomprehensible sacrifice, him laying down his life, when we see that, that's what John's saying in 1 John 3, when we see it, we know it, we become, it becomes part of our lives, it frees us to copy what he did here to be willing to empty ourselves of every desire to pass by on the other side. It frees us to open our hearts as wide as possible in order to love those around us who are in need. This is what Christians were made for. This is what Christians were made for. It's why God keeps us here instead of takes us home immediately. He desires to show his love to others, and he does it through his people. And So we're going to take communion here in a few moments. 
And when you receive these elements that are going to signify the, the body and blood of, of Jesus, given to free us so that we can love our brothers and sisters and our neighbor, use this opportunity to contemplate and worship the fact that God has sent his son to show us his love, his extraordinary love. And that in seeing that love, in soaking it up, in, in, in causing it to control our hearts and our desires, we are free to show that love. When we love, think about this, this is an amazing thought. When you love somebody who is in need, it's not your love that's happening there. It is your love, but it's not. It is the love of God flowing through you to them. That's what Christian love is. It is the love of God being expressed. And so that, that begs a question. If we don't show that to the people around us, how will they ever know the love of God? How will they ever experience the love of God? We are in their lives because God desires to love them. That's why we're there. That's why we're around people who don't know it. God desires to love them. And God's appointed means for showing his love to the world is through his own people. That's plan A, and there is no plan B. And so in the coming weeks and months, especially over the summer, as we consider how many opportunities we have to invite people into our homes, to, to help people who are struggling in need, to um, share a meal with someone, to love and care for someone who is, who's going through something difficult, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, or whether it's at just walking down the street as we journeyed, like the Samaritan, um, we need to do everything we can to resist the, the temptation to pass by on the other side. That's going to be the natural inclination. I just don't have time for this. And we need to lay down our lives so that we can experience, so that others can experience and taste the very love that has saved us. This is what it means to be a Christian. God did not save us so that our, his love would stop with us. His love is not intended to terminate on us and then just not go anywhere. His love is intended to flow through us. We are conduits of his grace and his love everywhere we go. And that is an awesome responsibility. That is a glorious task. And that is impossible without the work of God in our hearts. And so as we worship here for the next few moments, uh, I would ask that you join me in praying and pleading that God would open up our hearts instead of allow us to close them off to people who need us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been an awesome morning worshiping with my family, my church family. Um, my prayer right now, Father, is that you would um, help me. I'm going to pray for myself, and I'm going to ask them to join me in this prayer and echo it in their hearts. I desire so much to be used by you to love other people. I don't want it to be said of my life that when the love of God came into his heart, Jeremy did not show it to anyone else. I don't want that. I want and I desire, Father God, for your love to flow through me to everyone in need around me. To love like Jesus loved. To express 
kindness and compassion like Jesus did. To not be a slave to schedule, to not be a slave to priorities, to not be a slave to all of the things that keep us from expressing love, but Father, that you would free me to love like he loved me. Because if he didn't, I would never taste the gospel. I would never taste what it meant to to know the goodness of God. Please free us to have that capacity. Open our eyes to people who need us to speak into their lives and to love them, Father God. And grant us to have the strength and the wisdom to say whatever it is you desire to say to them, Father. We long to show your love to this world, Father God. So help us in these next few moments to know it in such a profound way that there isn't any other response that we could have but to share it with those around us. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.